Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. The mists are swirling over the London skyline this morning as the government prepares to convince everyone that they can just about see clearly through limited visibility all the way to Christmas and beyond after a weekend of ridiculous advice from not playing board games at Christmas to shopping in under 15 minutes like some form of supermarket sweep. We're all heartily sick of the Big Brother approach that Boris Johnson and his henchmen appear to be utilising. Instead, let us concentrate on the big vote tomorrow which may or may not pass muster with most of the population. And we'll no doubt see the large bulk of our representatives in Parliament voting for more lockdown. Because let's not forget, many people now are in a a better place than they will be on Wednesday. If you move out of this particular lockdown into a Tier 3 lockdown, you're going to be worse off than you are now. Make no mistake. One thing, that's for sure. Despite Boris Johnson's promises, it will be a lot worse for a lot more people. And you can also bet that good old forensic Sakir Starmer will be going along with every single bit of it. We'll ask Brendan Chilton from Labour Party where it all went wrong. Uh, he's also now CEO of the Independent Business Network. We may have a word about Brexit as well. 0344 Coming up later on, we'll be joined by a man on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens with his take on the events of the weekend, uh, which of course include the ludicrous over policing of the anti-lockdown march, the supine press and the madness of the cabinet. Plus, of course, we need to hear from you as we're told the R rate is falling, the infection rate is falling and the vaccine is coming. What are you preparing for? What are you hearing and what are you doing? Do let us know. We could ask the same questions of the government, but they don't really like answering them very much. I mean, we had a government minister on this morning on Julie Hartley Brewer's show actually admitting that the rules are not very consistent and don't really make very much sense. 0344 499 1000. Also coming up, we're welcoming eco-millionaire Dale Vince back to the show. He hasn't been on for a while. He's got a new book coming out and it's all about how being green changed his life. He thinks it might change my life. I'll be telling him it's a load of old cobblers. 0344 499 1000. You'll listen to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, let us say a very, very good morning to Mr. Brendan Chilton, CEO of the Independent Business Network, a man we haven't spoken to for far too long. Brendan, a very good morning to you. 
I'm delighted to be back, Mike. What's been going on? Well, do you know, on? Do you know <laughs> what? You know, we still haven't left the European Union, but, you know, here we are. We're now, <laughs> we're now a television station, so we can see you now as well as listening to you, which is great news. Um, but listen, the reason I wanted to talk to you, uh, it's so there are so many things I want to talk to you about. I'm not sure we've got enough time. But let's kick off, first of all, uh, with the whole lockdown scenario that we're currently in, because you're in Kent. Uh, a lot of people in Kent not very happy with the fact that Tier 3 suddenly came out of nowhere uh, in the mists of time. Uh, what's going on well it's no longer just disgusted of tunbridge wells it's disgusted of kent um what's happened is unfortunately one borough uh, on the north kent coast has got a slightly higher infection rate uh, than the rest of the county and so one and a half million people as of this week are going to be plunged into a tier three lockdown which is going to be absolutely disastrous uh, for the hospitality sector for youth unemployment and indeed could have a negative impact on our preparations uh, for the end of the transition. Because, mm. of course, Kent is at the centre of all this with the border infrastructure. And I really do feel that these measures are completely unnecessary and are going to have severe long-term damage to our local and national economy. Yes, and we've got the vote coming up tomorrow. I mean, we've heard that there's quite a few Tory MPs who are likely to rebel, but it's not very helpful that the Labour Party seem to be completely and utterly like rabbits in the headlights over this, and they just seem to vote with every single government measure to lock everybody down. Well, I think if there was a free vote uh, this week, a lot of Labour MPs would be inclined to rebel. And I think as well, if, if enough Tory MPs rebel, you never know, we might get some sanity being restored to Parliament. Uh, but for the Labour Party as well, this is a particularly challenging issue because we need to win back the support of small business, of the self-employed, of those in the private sector, those people who were really put off. Uh, by the last Labour manifesto, which instead is now being implemented by a Conservative government. Yes. Um, which I is know. A only, only worse. Kind of <laughs> it really <laughs> is. Worse, yes. I mean, it, you, could, you could not have make, made this stuff up. I mean, since you and I spoke, Brendan, you know, Boris Johnson has become the most kind of paranoid, frightened, you know, un, shall we say, chivalrous individual that you could ever have thought he would ever become. And instead of, um, you know, standing up for the common man and business and small business in particular, he's absolutely killing it all. Well, well he's Chairman Mao, isn't he? Yeah. He's got absolute power and he shut down the private sector in this country. What he hasn't uh, made go bust, he's nationalised. Uh, he's paying everyone's wages. Well, actually, he's not paying everyone's wages. He's borrowing to pay everyone's yes. wages. And at some point, all these people who at the moment are very supportive of the current measures are not going to like paying it back with austerity and tax rises, perhaps next year or the year after. Mm. So I say to all those people who are very comfortable at the moment, ha ha. Don't be so comfortable because you're going to have to pay all this back, as we all are. No, exactly right. I mean, I was listening to some think tank individual this morning who was advocating um, the future for the next sort of two years of people being paid to stay at home because it would be safer. And I mean, it's unbelievable how many people actually think that that's a good idea, uh, which, which, as you say, has no consequences. Well, absolutely. It's insanity. We've borrowed this year alone for just under £400 billion pounds uh, from the international markets and from the Bank of England. It's totally unsustainable. And we're going to have to borrow more to pay for the unemployment that's going to go up because of the very policies the government's implementing. Mm. We are in for a very long, painful period. 
And when the government turns around and says, oh, by 2022, we'll be back to relative normality. Well, every single forecast they've made on COVID has been incorrect. We should all be dead by now. Yeah. Uh, so I do not for one minute <laughs> believe their forecasts for growth are going to in any way be correct. Well, that's we're right. looking at 2025 uh, at the earliest. And yet even still this morning, we're hearing news from Imperial College London that, you know, uh, this is happening, that's happening, the rates are falling. You know, uh, I don't know why we're listening to these people. Their models have been completely discredited. All of their predictions have been completely untrue. I mean, if you and I were that bad at our jobs, we'd literally be unemployed. Well, precisely. When um, Professor Witty, whatever they're called, I call them Trini and Susanna, when they're up on the television <laughs> giving their forecast to the nation, telling us that we're all going to die and that hospital beds are going to be overwhelmed, what happened to those huge Nightingale hospitals that the NHS and the Army built? Very right. impressive at the time. Yes. What are they all doing? What happened to all those tens of thousands of doctors and nurses who volunteered to go back into the NHS when we were told it was going to be overwhelmed? Yeah. What happened to the one million volunteers that I signed up uh, to be a volunteer? One million volunteers that signed up uh, to help the NHS. What's happening? The reports I'm getting, down here in Kent at least, are that the hospitals are managing just fine. And all of the national statistics are showing that the occupancy rates for beds are below the usual levels at this time of year. Mm. So what are we doing? Yes, it seems incredible that not only are we about to enter a new phase of what could be worse than the one we're in, but we're now also having to have a conversation about a third possible lockdown coming in January. You know, when on earth are these people, and I've been doing and saying this for many months now, when on earth are these people that run this country going to recognise that there are they have to that they have to find another way they have to be able to deal with all of these uh, problems and with the deaths as well let's not forget there are still deaths happening yeah. but you know they're no more bad than it's ever been in any other given year particularly you know if it's 10% up that's 10% up but you know there's also lots of other things going on you know when are they going to learn that they have to approach this differently you're absolutely right, Mike. I mean, we had a lockdown, then we had tears, then we had another lockdown, and now we're due to enter into tears again. Mm. And many parts of England have found themselves in much higher tears than they were prior to the last lockdown. That someone once said, I can't remember who, the first sign of insanity is doing something over and over yeah. again and expecting different results. We're not getting different results. The government needs some imagination, mm. it needs to think outside of the box. I would suggest that all those people uh, with pre-existing conditions and those who are regarded as being most vulnerable uh, should shield. The rest of us, yes, let's wear our mask, let's wear social distancing, but let's get the economy moving yeah. because we cannot afford what's going on at the moment. Have you got any hope, Brendan, that Kent will at some point or other be able to lobby the government or at least parts of Kent will be able to lobby the government and perhaps in two weeks' time uh, you get your, your, your tier status reduced down to two? No, unfortunately, I don't, because I think at the moment the government are being led by fear above all else. They're not having rational policy discussions and decisions made based on evidence. They're being made based on what could happen, mm. not what will happen. Yeah. And at the moment, as I say, we've got uh, higher cases in Swale and in Thanet, two parts of Kent that are quite isolated and detached from other parts of the county. Yet all of us are going to be in this tier three. Uh, I find myself in a strange position where I'm agreeing with my local Conservative MP. We don't often agree on a lot, <laughs> right. uh, but on this, we are united at least. I have to say, I got there just before he did, though. 
Yes. Well, I mean, there are a lot of Tory MPs who are not very happy here. And I mean, I don't quite understand why Boris Johnson, um, having been led for so long by Dominic Cummings, is now apparently being led by somebody else uh, into this kind of self-harming area where basically the Tories... Which which was which were given who were given an eighty seat majority to basically run the country in the way that the people who voted for Brexit wanted them to, and they've completely chucked it in. They've completely thrown themselves under a bus. Well, the government have taken back control from Brussels, but they've also taken control from the British people. Yeah. And instead of levelling up, which they promised to do, they're levelling down all those areas and indeed other areas that voted uh, for the government. And I would also say to the Labour Party as well, it's no good us sitting here going, oh, we want more draconian measures and we want more lockdown and then going to those very red wall seats and others that we need to win to form a government and saying, oh, we voted which, uh, for measures that have destroyed your local businesses, that have driven up unemployment, that's broke the economy and borrowed to the hilt. Please vote for us because they won't, because British people are very sensible. And they know that what you borrow today, you've got to pay back. They know if unemployment goes up, there's going to have to be more spent on welfare. This country is a a buccaneering country. It's a country of small businessmen. And in the past, people that went out around the world and traded. And that's what we need to do. A, to get our economy moving and B, to make a success of Brexit. Well, exactly. You mentioned Brexit before. Let's talk about that a little bit, because as you say, Kent, very much in the forefront of that, very much at the, at the sort of cutting edge, if you like. There must be loads of businesses in Kent, particularly in South East Kent, which are kind of preparing for Brexit, which are preparing for, for what's coming. And it must be terribly difficult for them right now. Well, quite right. They've spent months preparing for this, only when we get to the 11th hour to be told their businesses can't open. Mm. So all that preparation that they've undertaken has in some ways been entirely pointless. Right. Um, I think that we are entering now a critical stage uh, with the Brexit negotiations. We're hearing all sorts of rumours that there will be a deal uh, this week. Um, We're told that fishing is a contentious issue and also the question of the level playing field. And all I would say to MPs on the Conservative side and on my side, the British people voted to leave the European Union. That means taking back full control, and I would emphasise full control, of our territorial waters, trade, money and borders. We didn't vote for a halfway house. And if the government is thinking of sneaking through a comfortable little compromise uh, in the wee hours of this week at some point, it will not be tolerated. And so every MP has got to look at this deal if one emerges very carefully. And I would also say this, even now, it is far better to walk away with no deal than enter into a set of arrangements that tie this country to the European Union for years to come. Yes, it makes no sense to do that. And I don't understand what would be the driving force of that, because clearly the people, as you say, voted for Brexit. Most people who voted for Brexit are quite happy to have no deal if it means not having to supplement uh, the EU's finances for years on years on end and to be having to listen to them on certain parts of policy. Um, And yet nobody seems to be telling Boris Johnson that truth. He seems to be under the um, the, the bizarre sort of um, you know impression that what his backbenchers tell him is more likely to be the case. Well, that's absolutely right. And we, we've seen over the past few years an enormous amount of political volatility. Uh, we've had coalition governments. We've had the rise of the Brexit party very quickly, which won the elections. We saw Labour absolutely destroyed my party at the last general election. The British people, the British electorate can swing quite violently one way or the other now. I think the government at the moment, because of the economic measures it's pursuing, is on borrowed time. 
if they now implement a Brexit arrangement that is totally unsatisfactory to the people that voted Leave, I think the government could be in very sticky water yes. very, very quickly. And when you see things like the scenes that we saw over the weekend as well, uh, with this anti-lockdown protest and the way the police are behaving at the moment, does that, does that worry you? It does worry me indeed. We have policing in this country by consent and the police need to remember that they are paid by us, the taxpayer, because policing isn't a profitable private enterprise. It's a public service that we pay for. And they're there to keep the peace, maintain law and order, not to do ridiculous things like walk into uh, Christmas card shops and tell them they need to close or to walk into uh, protesters uh, who happen to be opposing the current measures and telling them to go away. Incidentally, mm. I know that when the Black Lives Matter protests were on, not a lot of arrests were made. Uh, but when people are opposing the current measures, there seems to be an awful lot. We cannot have political policing in this country. We're not the United States or any other country. We're Britain. And we need to have good old neutral, independent bobbies on the beat who apply the law. I have to say, though, in the defence of the police, they have got to implement and manage these ridiculous COVID mm. laws that the government have implemented. So I do have some sympathy for them, but they must treat us all equally and not appear to favour one group over the other. Yes, no, I totally agree with that. I have sympathy with the police as well. But when you see individual officers uh, behaving in a way that you think they don't really have to do, you know there's something wrong. And I think we all know the difference between the way a police officer needs to, uh, to be and the way they don't have to be. No, quite right. And again, the overwhelming majority of police do a very good job. But in every profession, you always get one or two people that overstep the mark. And I think the appropriate bodies within the police should certainly investigate some individuals who we've all seen the clips on uh, social media over the weekend, uh, some of the activities in London and some of those police who were, let's be, uh, let's say, slightly over vigorous uh, yes. in their approach uh, to dealing with them. Yeah, absolutely right. So, Brendan, um, finally, just on Brexit, are you hopeful that by sort of January the 30th, uh, well, not January 31st, December the 31st, we'll be will be done, we'll be dusted, you'll be happy? Unfortunately, uh, over the past few years, I've become extremely cynical about uh, political commitment. <laughs> no uh, no way, really? <laughs> no, no, only a little bit uh, about the uh, commitments that have been made by politicians to get Brexit done. Uh, Boris Johnson told us a year ago there would be no border down the Irish Sea. And lo and behold, there is now essentially a new border down right. the Irish Sea. Right. Uh, so when he tells us, uh, that we're going to have a, a satisfactory outcome this week or next. I will wait and see the text of the document, read it very, very carefully, and then decide uh, whether or not Brexit has been achieved. If I were to uh, put a bet on it, I would say we would probably end up, be more unlikely to end up with a shabby deal uh, than actually one that's satisfactory. Well, let's hope you're wrong. But, Brendan, we'll check back in with you when it happens so we can get your uh, view straight from the horse's mouth. Brendan Chilton, uh, CEO of the Independent Business Network. Great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Good to see you. Uh, it's going to be December soon. By the way, for all of you people up in the north of uh, uh, of this country, and I say this country very carefully, make no mistake, uh, it is St Andrew's Day. So a very happy St Andrew's Day to everybody in Scotland and everybody who celebrates St Andrew's Day, whether they're Scottish or not. And particularly if you're Scottish and you're living down here, a very happy St Andrew's Day to you as well. We will no doubt, I'm sure, be talking about Scotland once again this week at some point or other. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Time to say a very good morning to Peter Hitchens of the Men on Sunday. Peter, hello, how are you? Are you there, Peter? Yes, I am. Yeah, welcome. Sorry, I thought we missed you there for a second. Well, um, there was sorry, sorry, the, the usual technical glitch at the, at the most important moment, <laughs> but I, I yes. can hear you 
you know I mean? Well, listen, if it happens to the Prime Minister, it can happen to you. I mean, you know, you well, would exactly. like to think that in Downing Street, they might have slightly better communications facilities than, than most of the rest of us, but sadly, it's not true. Well, I hope they've got better communications facilities than I've got. <laughs> now, listen, um, again, at the weekend, you were uh, urging people to write to their MPs. Many people are doing it. There is a vote tomorrow. Um, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this question, but I'm told that if this bill is, in fact, voted down, that somehow we will revert back either to the rules before this latest lockdown or we'll just revert back to this lockdown. I don't know. I'd be very surprised if it's voted down because I think uh, Keir Starmer, the well-known Trotskyist, uh, will get his troops to to vote for this and to back the government Mm. uh, because he's not in the mood for opposing any of this at the moment. Uh, So I don't think that's a danger. What I think is, uh, is, is most important, the reason why I'm saying to people, please, please write to your member of parliament with this simple message. Uh, if you vote today, Tuesday, to destroy the jobs of others, don't expect to keep your own. No. Uh, you, can, you can do this fantastically easily, by the way, by simply going to a, a, a thing called writetothem.com. Extraordinarily easy to find. will then direct you to your member of parliament. You won't have to look out their email address or anything. It's so easy to do, and if enough people do it, uh, then MPs who mostly can't think but who can all count will begin to worry about their majorities. So if we can start uh, to to drive a, a wedge between the Tory party and the Johnson junta, uh, then we can actually begin to bring an end to this thing because nothing else will. Uh, so, yeah, I'm, I'm very much urging people to do that now. There's still time to do it. The vote's tomorrow. Uh, the more people do it, tell your friends, tell your neighbours, ask your colleagues, ask your family, get everybody you can to get involved in this because actually it's the only lawful, peaceful power which we have in this country. And if we don't use it, then we shouldn't be surprised if when this goes wrong, other people use uh, other methods which would be much less pleasant. Well, indeed. And as we saw uh, at the weekend, and, you know, I always speak about these things with, with, a, with a certain caveat because I wasn't there. I don't see precisely what happens before a particular video is shot. But it certainly seems to me that there were enough instances of overreach by the police. There was the case in Bournemouth of some people who seemed to have been trapped on a bus for a ridiculous amount of time uh, while they were being prevented from, from demonstrating. There were people, uh, individuals who seemed to have been arrested by a grossly overwhelming number of police officers while seemingly doing nothing other than just saying something uh, which uh, the police didn't like. You know, and it worries me intensely that this is going on in 2020 in my capital city. Well, it is extremely worrying and distressing to watch. I myself don't have much time for demonstrations. I did all the demonstrating. No, I'm with you. I'm I'm not a fan of them either. In in my Trotsky's period, but... Uh, I still find that I still think that the freedom to demonstrate is a very important one, and I think that it has effectively been abolished uh, by the government's, in my view, abuse of the law. And here's another thing: uh, this has been challenged in the courts by Simon Dolan at great expense and great trouble. And we're still waiting. Well, it came before the Lord Chief Justice, I think, three weeks ago. Now we're still waiting for any word from them on whether all this is even legal. But the, the, what is certainly true is the police who, are, who, who seem to decide to be zealous about some things but are unable to be zealous about others. For instance, they won't pursue burglaries or car thefts or shoplifters. Right. But my goodness, give them the power to handcuff demonstrators and drag them off into holding pens and, and, and find them vast sums of money. And they use it. And also, look at the numbers of them. For years and years, I've been told, oh, it's the reason why the police can't patrol the streets is there aren't enough of them. They've yeah. got terrible shortages. Look at the place. As soon as a demonstration turns up they don't like, thousands of right. them appear from wherever they keep them, uh, masked and, uh, and, and, and accoutred for, for battle. 
and they, they start dragging people off the streets. In many cases, as far as one can see, people who weren't doing anything other than protesting. Well, right. And I, it, 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 this, it, it is a complete change in the nature of our country when, when the freedom to protest is, is effectively taken away like this and, and there's no restraints on it. What is the government doing to, to, to actually say to the police, this wasn't what we meant you to do? Right. We didn't want to make demonstrating illegal. Or maybe it is the case the government does want to make demonstrations illegal, in which case they're going about it in a very effective way. Well, indeed. And, and I mean, one of the things that I found even more ridiculous, I don't know if you saw this one, was up in Newcastle, I think it was, um, police officers knocking on the door of a student residence and demanding to be allowed in to see how many people were inside. And the guy out, uh, was saying, what right do you have to do it? Uh, they started quoting some law at him uh, that the government had passed. I don't know what the end result was, but he was basically not going to let them in. He said, I'll, I'll bring people to the front door and let you see who's here, if you wish. But you cannot come into the house and you cannot go into individual rooms and go through people's private property. The police seem to think they can. Well, of course, if they think they can and they turn out uh, mob-handed enough, most people will give in to them. Yeah. And we have actually sacrificed a lot of the security of our homes over recent years you, you see constantly portrayed on television uh, with uh, the implication this is a good thing the police smashing down people's front doors mm. usually supposedly in pursuit of, of the, the the drug dealers that uh, nothing ever, much ever seems to happen to right. and people have learned to applaud this and, and i've always felt even though i'm no keener on drug dealers than anybody else that there was something rather fishy about it uh, that the sanctity of the, of the home, the idea that the Englishman's home was his castle, was a very important part of liberty in this country, and it's now gone. I don't know whether they have that freedom or not. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if the laws, so-called laws, because I, the, the legality is dubious, uh, which the government put together on the basis of the 1984 Public Health Act, did allow them to actually burst into people's homes. Uh, in any case, if, if, if you get in their way, uh, they, they will undoubtedly get that power from some compliant magistrate. I think we have given away by, by, by passivity, failure to protest, an awful lot of, of liberty which we possessed 50 years ago. Mm. And I think this is a very strong warning we're getting now. If we don't fight to get it back, then we may have lost it forever. But the, the, we do increasingly seem to live in a, in, in a sort of militia state. Uh, where the police are a government militia rather than the police force. Yeah, it does seem that way because they do appear to be far more kind of galvanised by attacking people that they think they can attack rather than actually preventing uh, or solving crime. You know, the, the crime statistics get worse every year. The solving of those crime statistics get worse every year. You know, but they seem to have a real kind of fondness uh, for running across parks in order to surround one man who happens to be saying COVID's a con. Well, in almost any task, people will do the thing which is easy and attractive rather than the thing which is difficult and important. Mm. Uh, in our trade, for instance, who wants to be the, the reporter who has to go and stand on the doorstep in the pouring rain in the middle of the night? Mm. Uh, who, who, who wants to be the person who's outside the negotiations at three in the morning? Uh, everybody wants to be sitting at a nice warm desk writing opinion pieces. Right. Uh, and and that's, that's, that's what they'll do unless there's somebody in charge who says, no, no, actually, you need to get out. Uh, and, and what's happened in the police is a huge failure of management and direction. Yeah. Instead of being, instead of being sent out onto the streets to prevent crime, their job, uh, they've been indulged and allowed to do what they want to do. And what they want to do, apart from suing each other for sexual harassment, uh, is, uh, is is to do bureaucratic things or to go out and, as I say, be um, 
how shall I put it, overbearing to powerless people. Yes. And if you, if you put powerful people in, the, in, in a position where they can push powerless people about, that is what I'm afraid they'll do. It's human nature. It's, 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 it's also, it's, it's, it's been, and I explore this in a book I wrote in 2004, The Abolition of Liberty. It's a very curious thing that a country in which crime is no longer properly pursued or prosecuted very quickly becomes a country in which the, indiv the individual's liberty uh, is circumscribed because ultimately the, the legal system has to assume everybody's guilty and treat everybody as a suspect and everybody as an enemy. And you see that demonstrated here now. The police regard the public uh, largely as a, as, as a nuisance uh, rather than as friends and allies. Yes. And, and just in case the police haven't got time to police everything uh, in our world, um, I, you'll know because we had a Twitter exchange about this, that our last interview last Monday, when I posted it on Facebook, uh, it put this warning on it. Missing context, independent fact checkers say that this information could mislead people. Now, first of all, I'm rather uh, peeved at the idea that some spotty youths have somehow been, you know, checking up on what you and I have been talking about and de deciding uh, unilaterally that somehow it might be misleading to people without actually saying why. Well, you can't. I, I had the same notice placed on. I, I put I, I put my um, my weekly column on Facebook and I had the same notice placed on that when I, I said last week that the, the mask study, the Danish mask study, Showed that masks were ineffective in yeah. controlling the spread of COVID, which it did. Uh, they, they effectively made no difference, and I, this notice was, was applied. If you click on it, they do come up with a sort of explanation. Uh, but the fact is, it's none of their business. No. It, it's not the business of Facebook to tell other people uh, whether they think that what I say is right or not. People can find that out for themselves. Yeah. But the problem is, again, these enormously powerful corporations are now taking upon themselves the, the, the power and the, it, they regard the duty uh, to actually guide people in what to think and tell them what they can safely read. Well, uh, I, as you know, I'm no lover of Donald Trump. No. But notice when he started putting out these tweets saying that, that the election had been rigged, uh, Twitter started saying the, the, this is baseless. And then you've got the BBC beginning to say every time that Trump came on the, the radio or the television, every time that he, he made this claim, the BBC said it was BBC said it was baseless. Well, if the BBC said that every, BBC said every time anyone made a baseless claim on on the BBC <laughs> that it was baseless, they wouldn't have time to do anything else because people are saying baseless things all the time. Well, I mean, quite. We but also, the current uh, government, for instance, most of what they say is baseless. Well, that which brings me to my next point of uh, of, of attack, if you like. There's an MP for Harborough called Neil O'Brien. Uh, who seems to have taken it upon himself to be the sole kind of crusader against any newspaper uh, which, which, which is critical of the government's policies and or the government's use of statistics. He attacked the Daily Mail last weekend uh, solely because they had some graph that he thought was wrong. Uh, he is now this week attacking the Sunday Telegraph as if he has been appointed as this kind of, you know, Tory with the, the story, as if he's the only one that actually knows. I wish he would be as rigorous with some of the government stats as he is with attacking newspaper ones. Well, of course, and there is, I get this thing all the time. Well, that Peter Hitchens, the well-known virologist, Peter Hitchens, the well-known yeah, yeah. epidemiologist, sarcastically saying, but I have no business to comment on this. Well, of course, I don't, I don't claim to be a virologist or an epidemiologist, but I do look very carefully at what such people say. And when I refer to the matter, I'm usually quoting the expertise yeah. of others. But the interesting thing is this. Uh, Johnson and Hancock and Jenrick are not, as far as I know, experts in virology or epidemiology. Uh, but no one ever questions their right, not only really to talk about it, 
but to but to make legislation and rules about it which have crippled the entire country all i'm doing is criticizing but the again and again in, in, in our current culture uh, those who are criticized are held to those who those those who criticize are held to completely different standards uh, than the government is held to and this is the wrong way around in a in a, any kind of state where the opposition and where criticism is the, is the main object of attack, is a state in which freedom is in danger. Mm. Uh, dissent should not be singled out uh, for criticism, which government uh, doesn't have to undergo. But I, I do, do get this all the time. And it, it's, you never see, uh, or I have never seen, any of these Facebook interventions on anything that Johnson or Hancock has said, saying this can't be trusted or this is wrong or this is factually incorrect. But the, cl the fundamental claim the government make all the time and the BBC ceaselessly accepts as true the claim that these shutdowns and, uh, and cripplings and stranglings of the economy in our society are effective is accepted as, as truth without any examination at all. And I, I, I drew attention in my, my column uh, on Sunday to mm. the fact that the, the most recent uh, piece of research showing there is no known connection between these lockdowns and a reduction in deaths. There never has been. No. Uh, the claim that they are effective is, un, is unproven. Yet it's constantly accepted. And when is Facebook ever going to come up with, with a little label on, on, the, on the claims that they say, actually, this claim is, is baseless? When is Twitter going to do so? Not at all, because they are not impartial in this, in this application. Uh, and it's quite evident that they're not. And it's a menace to liberty that they behave in this way. And there's a kind of a cynical side to it as well, in a way, um, treating the public really uh, rather ridiculously as if they're stupid children you know like today for example we've got the news coming out which the bbc as you say is reporting uh, as if it's absolute fact that imperial college has now decided that the infection rate is going down and with the clear inference that the reason that it's going down is because we had a four-week lockdown which to be honest wasn't any different from what happened before the four-week lockdown um they're now saying that the r rate is falling down below one they're now saying that you know therefore we can conclude uh, that what we did was right well i'm sorry i don't think you can conclude that can you well no you can't I and mean, in fact they, 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 they as far as i can tell they were quite careful not actually specifically to say that it was caused by it but say they left the implication very strongly yeah there I, we still need to go back of course to, to the, the most significant change in all the figures that took place back in april the 8th when the number of deaths from the the actual wave of covid i, I believe that the so-called second wave is largely a statistically manufactured thing but the actual uh, the actual outbreak in in, in march and april uh, the, when deaths peaked on april the 8th that could not have been caused it simply could not have been caused by the shutdown announced and begun on March the 23rd. No. There wasn't time enough for it to be the cause. And this is, this is now quite evident, but it, it's still not examined. People don't turn back and say, did this work? Because everybody involved in both government and the government broadcasting service, formerly known as the BBC, everybody involved in promoting this thing sticks constantly to the presumption that what they have done is right and, and, and can't be examined. The only criticism they will ever allow or make or repeat is the, the, the suggestion that we didn't lock down soon enough. Uh, a, a piece of completely specious rubbish, but it's the, that's the only thing they will they will they will allow as criticism, and that is what I fear unless. Uh, those of us who are against this keep up our attack endlessly. Uh, that is what the public inquiry, which will which will be held into this, 
will conclude. And we, once that happens, then we're doomed to have these things over and over again until the end of time. Yeah. I mean, of course, the, the counter argument, I suppose, to all of what we say is that there aren't very many countries in Europe doing it any differently. And in fact, I had a message from somebody who's living in France at the moment who says that in France, if you want to go out, you basically have to get a letter of permission from the local gendarmerie. So, I mean, it's not just in Britain where this kind of craziness is going on. No, it isn't. But we, those of us who are against it, do keep pointing to the example of Sweden, which is ceaselessly misrepresented uh, by by uh, by partial and uh, inadequate reports of what's going on there, uh, because there seem to be so many people, as it were, locked in cages who look at the freedom of Sweden and resent their freedom and want to chain them up too. Uh, the, also, I think there's there's word coming out of Switzerland on the lockdown skeptic site today, Switzerland, which is steer the sort of middle path mm. again showing that more evidence that shutting down the country is not effective in keeping in keeping the, the disease at bay at all uh, but to, to the fact that lots of other people have made the same mistake uh, doesn't mean that it isn't a mistake and countries such as france i'm sorry about this but i, I love france and it, it's it, it's a country i visit with much pleasure and have a lot of admiration for but it is actually still really a, a 17th century autocracy and its government reaches for the, for the heavy club of power uh, and restraint very much more readily than the British government uh, either has done in the past or should do. Mm. And the same is true of almost all the other continental countries. Uh, they have been used to a long time to, to very, very powerful state authority. And when they get the opportunity to use it, that's what they do. We should be different. We shouldn't be comparing ourselves with countries which are less free than us. No, that's true. But also, I always imagine, and, and maybe you know France better than I do. I mean, I've, I've only ever been there as a, as a tourist, really. Um, it's, it seems to be a country where the people rise up much quicker than the people in this country rise up if they don't like something the government's doing. And yet they don't. I mean, there, there have been riots uh, going on in, in, in Paris, but, you know, they happen so often that you kind of are not necessarily that surprised. But But in the bulk of the country, they seem to be accepting it. Well, I think possibly if you if you got out of Paris, I hear reports from outside Paris where in, in, in some small towns the regime is is more relaxed. But the, the truth is that it, it, it has this history of what's, what's sometimes called negotiation by riot, rather than the, the democratic and lawful institutions of the country uh, performing their job as a safety valve and a means by which people can, can protest lawfully. Uh, they don't really work very much. And then there is an explosion of violence on the streets, particularly in Paris, mm. government then changes. Uh, but that's a terrible way of ruling things. Our system, where the government listens to the people uh, before they take to the streets and start hurling cobblestones, is a better one. The problem is we seem to have adopted the French system. Uh, and ultimately, if you adopt the French system, then I think you, pr you probably end up with negotiation by riot and cobblestone hurtling through the, through, 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 the, yeah. uh, through the, in the streets, which I very much do not wish to see. I fear it greatly. Yes. Uh, no, again, I agree. I, and I, I see no... Right to your MP. Yeah, no, I see no end to it. I see if this continues in terms of the government's policies, there will be these marches incessantly uh, from now until kingdom come, as far as I can see. I'm not sure if we lost you there. Well, I, I'm afraid you did, but ah. I think I got caught. There will be marches, and, they, and, they, and they, I think that people will get um, will get less well behaved, mm. and the police get, will get less well behaved, and the general uh, the general feeling of, of, of lawfulness and peace in the country could well be undermined. And I think the government should be very alarmed uh, by the fact that it's 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 sealed off all the safety valves, yeah. uh, because when the safety valves are sealed, then the boiler bursts, and how it bursts and when it bursts, I wouldn't like to predict, but I have to say long. 
winter months uh, of, of continued shutdown with more and more people realizing that their jobs are never going to come back and their businesses are finished, uh, it doesn't seem to me to be a recipe for social peace. No, I don't think it does. Peter, once again, we're out of time, but thank you very much indeed for joining us. Great to talk to you once more. Same time next week. I fear much will have changed by then. Peter Hitchens, of course, uh, Men on Sunday columnist. Go and read his column. Uh, You can find him on Twitter. Uh, We'll put out that interview, of course, as well. Let's see whether Facebook puts another warning on it, shall we? Uh, Because they can get stuffed as far as I'm concerned. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. I'm delighted to say that an old uh, adversary, I think is the right word uh, to say, uh, is back on the show. Hasn't been here for a while. Uh, he is, of course, Dale Vince, OBE, uh, who is now uh, the proud author of a book called Manifesto, How a Maverick Entrepreneur Took on British Energy and Won. Uh, it says he's founder of Ecotricity, which, of course, is the green energy company. He's also the owner of Forest Green Rovers, the football club. He's also, according to this, United Nations climate champion. Dale, welcome back. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Mike. Uh, good to be back. Very nice to doing? see you. I'm sorry we haven't spoken for such a long time. We've been a bit sort of distracted with the coronavirus pandemic, <laughs> is all I can say. <laughs> yes, plenty to get your teeth into there. Well, quite. How do you get to be a United Nations climate champion? I'd quite like that. Yeah, it's not a bad gig, actually. I mean, I don't get paid or anything like that. But uh, it just came about once we started talking to the UN about three years ago. They liked what we were doing at Forest Green. Uh, they were planning a global version. It's called Sport for Climate Action. It's about engaging the whole world of sport in the fight against climate change. And uh, we were co-founders, co-signatories of, of that uh, of that plan. And um, yeah, it came out of that. 
Okay. And the book, um, I don't know if you've written a book before, but I mean, it's uh, you've, you've very kindly <laughs> written into it uh, a, a, a little note that says, I read this, it could change your life. Now, I haven't read all of it, but I've read bits of it. And so far, my life hasn't changed at all. So, so when's that going to happen? Uh, I don't know how far you've got, but just just keep just keep at it, Mike. You made me laugh. I thought you said I don't know if you've ever read a book. Said <laughs> no, read, no, no, no. <laughs> no, listen, listen. You know me, Dale. I'm far from one of those snobby radio people who make out that some people are not as clever as I am. I would never do that uh, because I know it's not true. Um, but the last time you were in this uh, in this building, uh, we spoke about your um, your your sort of your story, if you like, because it is quite an interesting story that you came from being a bit of a crusty, really, uh, a guy who kind of dropped out of society, ended up as a bit of a hippie, but then kind of built this amazing business. Yeah, that's right. I spent ten years living on the road as a new age traveller. Um, I learned a lot in that time. I lived in a lot of different vehicles, buses, trucks, ambulances and stuff. And I became really self-sufficient in kind of changing engines and rebuilding them and stuff like that. And then uh, it was early 90s. I had a little windmill on the roof of my trailer. So I was kind of familiar with uh, renewable energy. And I saw the first big wind farm built in Cornwall. And I thought, you know what, I could spend 10 more years doing this or I could drop back in and do something else. And that's how it began. And I mean, you say that as if it was easy to do, but I mean, it's not that simple, is it, to go from literally not really being uh, in a position to own anything to running a, a multi-million pound business. I mean, there are those who might say you must have had a bit of luck along the way, surely. Well, I must have had an awful lot of luck, I think, but I had an awful lot of uh, pig-headedness as well, which is a kind of uh, uh, an attribute that I have in, uh, in, I'd say, bucket loads. I think this is where and, we share a common uh, theme. <laughs> so it took actually five years mike to build that first windmill from the early 90s to, to 1996 actually right. friday the 13th of december uh i remember that well and, and it took five years of battling everything and everybody to make it happen and and i think after that it became a little bit easier but we had an awful lot of uh big events and luck uh as well after that for the next 20 years to get to here right and of course, green energy now is very much the the trendy thing to be. I mean, we just saw a couple of weeks ago Boris Johnson announcing his green industrial revolution, which I personally think is a load of old cobblers. I don't think he'll ever achieve what it is that he wants to achieve. Um, um, but it but it's very much the place to be to get the funding, to get the grants, to get all of that. I mean, a lot of people say to me, if you're involved in green energy. Uh, you basically uh, have a license to print money because you'll get grants from the European Union, you'll get grants from the British government, uh, and you'll be able to run a business literally with other people's money. If only what those people were saying were true. There's well, you say no you didn't get from... any subsidies from anyone? I'm saying there's there's no money from the EU. There's actually no money from this government. The, um, the support scheme for renewable energy was actually run through energy companies themselves. So <clears throat> I think it was... Um, and it may have been Labour um, that set this up uh, as a scheme to support renewable energy. It obliged power companies to buy a certain amount, and that created a market for it. Uh, and so it was done that way. So not a subsidy from our government, no money from the EU, and and even the support from our government uh, that did exist through this scheme has ended uh, about five years ago under David Cameron. So uh, well, even as he was putting, even as he was putting his own windmill up. Wow, yeah, I mean, he, he he did that, didn't he? He's, he sat out hugging huskies and putting that little windmill on his roof, which is pretty futile, I have right. to say. Right. Uh, but the, by the time he left office, he had banned onshore wind and banned solar and was driving fracking, was pushing that on us, wasn't he, you know, against uh, against all the odds. 
Well, I mean, not necessarily against all the odds, but against the green sort of lobby, which is huge now. I mean, if you look at Extinction Rebellion and what they've managed to achieve, you know, I'm no fan of theirs, as you know, um, but, but they've managed to get themselves into a meeting with Michael Gove. They've managed to get government policy to start adopting some of their uh, recommendations. And they've also managed to, to lie down and completely bring London to a standstill um, on several occasions without ever really being uh, caught up about it. Yeah, I think the, the push for fracking was against all logic. It was against economics. It was against environment issues. You know, there were, there were safety concerns. George Osborne had to create the most generous tax regime in the world, in his own words, to try and make it happen. They had to change planning law and environment law and take the planning decision out of the hands of local councils just to try and force it through. And public opinion was about 70% against fracking. So that's what I mean by against all the odds. Extinction Rebellion have probably got the government a little bit scared, I would say, because of the, the scale of the, the demonstrations and, as you say, laying down in front of stuff and basically disrupting life. But I'm with them. You know, if we don't do that, then I don't think we get enough attention for these issues because these are life-threatening issues. Yeah, but, but that's the trouble, Dale. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm a great believer in public opinion, but I don't believe <clears throat> public opinion polls because they can be manipulated and they can be made to say anything. I mean, I go with, with the people that I talk to on this show, the people that I see uh, on everyday missions around the country, people who have ordinary jobs, people who have real struggles, uh, particularly at the moment, economically, just to get their day done and their work done without interference from the government, without being penalised, um, by, you know, these kind of green taxes which come in. Yeah, understood. The polls I was referring to were taken by the government themselves and have been taken for about, the last, for about the last 20 years on a very consistent you know, you try, basis. You're not going to stand there and try and convince me that the government's telling us the truth, are you? But the polls were taken on a very consistent basis and they showed about 70% for onshore wind support and about 70% opposition to fracking and that was a very consistent figure but uh, i take what you mean uh, people struggling to get on with their, their you know normal lives without government interference and stuff like that i'd make this point mike that during the pandemic the disruption to our everyday lives has been incredible it's been extreme and the kind of changes we need to make to fight the climate crisis are very small by comparison it shows that we can do it well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there are so many different aspects to the conversation. And in your book, you talk about what you said to me before, that you're not just about energy, you're about um, changing people's habits in all sorts of ways. You know, you don't want people uh, to think about eating animals. You don't want people to think about travelling really in the same way that they did. So, I mean, you presumably would be quite happy with where we are at the moment in terms of the fact that nobody's going anywhere. <laughs> well, there, there are some upsides, let's say. <laughs> well, but I'm no. not very happy about it. You know, the only place I've been on holiday this year is the Isle of Wight. <laughs> I think you can still go there. It's tier one, isn't it? It is. Um, yeah. no, it's, it's not that, that, it's not that much fun. I'm not going back for a while. <laughs> <laughs> energy, transport and food, Mike. It's about how we power ourselves, how we travel and what we eat. And it's not about giving stuff up. You know, we can still have, still have energy. We can still travel and still eat. It's just about doing them in a different way. That's the that's the theme of the book, and it's all there condensed in chapter thirteen, the actual manifesto itself. Yeah, but you've you've said that you want people to stop eating animals, that you want them to replace their diets with plants. 
Yeah, we need to. I mean, industrial farming is killing us, literally. I mean, it's causing direct human health hazards. It's one of the biggest drivers of the climate crisis and water pollution and land pollution and that kind of stuff. And of course, it's responsible for zoonotic viruses like this coronavirus that we're now fighting. There are about 30 of them known in the world. You could list a handful of them that have hit us in the last 10 or 20 years. This is just the latest one, and it comes from factory farming. But what do you make of the farming announcements today? Uh, that the government are making, the changes they're making to farming, where they're saying, where they're, saying they're going to change the way that farms are subsidised. They're no longer going to be subsidised based on their size, but more now based on how environmentally friendly they are. Well, I think it's fantastic. I mean, I think it's ridiculous that up until now, as a landowner, you simply got given money for owning land. That's the basis of it. Nearly £2 billion a year given to people that own land. And what they're saying is, as you say, in the future, they'll only get the money if they create wildlife habitats and stuff like that. It's exactly the kind of thing that we need to do. It's, again, a theme of my book. We need to take the subsidies that we're giving at the moment, which are driving the wrong kind of behaviour, and use them instead to drive the right kind of behaviour. But see, this is where people start falling uh, out with you when you start talking about the right kind of behaviour and the wrong kind of behaviour. I mean, who are you to say what's right and wrong? Well, it's not a moral judgment. It's a logical, scientific judgment, Mike. You know, in the last 50, 60 years in our country, we've had the most enormous decline in wildlife, and it's due to industrial farming and the way that we treat the land. And and it comes back to the food point. You know, if we all gave up eating meat, we could give back 75% of all of Britain's farmland, give it back to nature. So what the government are talking about today is... To to what, though? So it would just be... To run wild. To, to run wild, absolutely, yeah. But what about the yeah. people that own it? What are you going to give them? Well, <laughs> they they can have some of this two billion pounds, which really? the government are going to pay them to do that. Right, absolutely. Well, I had a leg of lamb at the weekend, right? Which was one of the greatest things I've ever tasted in my life. It was a particularly good one. Uh, it was particularly <laughs> organic. You cannot tell me that anything that grows out of the ground is going to taste anything like that. And I'm never going to be convinced by that. And if you do do away with uh, people eating, for example, lamb, what are you going to do with all the, all the, all the, wild, all the wildlife which is actually eaten? Uh, you lost me there. Which wildlife that is actually eaten? Well, if you're, you eating, mean, if you're eating lambs and you're eating mutton and you're eating cows and you're eating pigs, where, where do they all go? Well, if we stop eating them, then we don't need them, do we? They won't go anywhere. Well, what do you mean you don't need them? They're just going to walk around? Are they just going to wander about? Well, they don't do that now, do they? They get killed and they end up on your plate. So if we were to do this, there would be a wind down, wouldn't there, from where we are today with like, uh, there's a billion animals a well, you year just let killed them die in Britain of old age. for food. Well, you just let them die uh, of no, old no, age. No, 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 you, you could eat them, Mike. But over a period of a few years, we'd go from like, a billion animals a year killed in Britain to none. And we wouldn't. We wouldn't produce them at the moment. I mean, animals are raped, basically, in order to get them pregnant so that they have other animals. And that's a continuous chain. How do you know they're not consenting to that? (laughs) I don't think anybody asks them, do they? Come on, Mike. Well, listen. Have you ever seen it? Yeah, I have. It's a hideous process. Well, I mean, the whole food chain is pretty hideous. But, I mean, that doesn't mean that we don't eat food because we want to eat food. You know, you can't change the way that people eat just because you want to. Uh, the whole animal food chain is hideous. Absolutely, I agree. But plant eating is not hideous. And, well, it's just and it's the people that eat plants that are hideous. <laughs> it's not because I want to, Mike. It's, you know, it's science and logic. You know, it's driving the yeah, climate but, you know, the science, It's causing yeah, human health problems. Science is the same science that's causing us to ruin every single city in this country and possibly in the world, uh, thanks to these scientists who are telling us that we have to shut everything in order to stop something which can't be stopped. 
Well, I think we can see that it can be uh, stopped or slowed down at least. We can see that when we do the wrong things, we get peaks of infection and deaths and that Nobody kind of really stuff. Nobody really understands it though, Dale. They don't know what's causing the peaks and the troughs. They really don't. Well, it's, it's human contact, isn't it? No, I mean, because we didn't, we didn't get any peaks in July when they opened the pubs. We didn't get any peaks in August when people were going to festivals and people were going out a lot and going to beaches. No peaks. Suddenly we get peaks. Guess why? Because people get tested when they go back to university and when schools go back. Simple. Well, I, I think schools and universities have definitely contributed in September. So you're right to point that out. And I think uh, August was the big eat out to help out month. And I think that was a big factor as well. And there is a lag, of course, uh, you know, between contact infection and reporting of infection. We see that in the data all of the time. Well, they tell us so that, I think but we, we can... don't know. Well, they tell us that. But then they've also told us that there uh, is now the infection rate is coming down. But it's not the same lag as when it went up. You know what I mean? You can take your science and you can take your pick of it, if you like, in every single aspect of life. I think the science makes sense. I look at the graphs and it makes sense to me. August and September, we changed radically how, how we did things. We opened up pubs. We drove people into pubs and onto the high streets. September, we opened up schools and universities. Yeah. So why wasn't it the same effect? Well, I think we, we, we started to feel that in October. Uh, which led to the November lockdown. And but now, if something you know, happened 99%. In, yeah, all right, well, hang on. But if something that happened in July felt the effect in October, how is the September effect now uh, disappearing? Uh, no, I'm saying August and September. I don't think July was such a big deal. Well, July uh, was August when everybody September. went back to the pubs, though. That was when they opened the pubs. I can tell you it got a lot busier around here. Yeah, but August was eat out to help out month, wasn't it, when it kicked off in earnest and September was schools and universities. Yeah. So, you know, you can see it in the data. Yeah, but all and I'm saying is you 99% take... of us are now in, in a, a tier two or a tier three, aren't we? Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, before so, November... So what, it was, what does uh, that tell you? It, it tells us that, actually, I don't think the government are properly in control of things. <laughs> no, exactly. It tells you that they don't know what they're doing. It tells you that all of the, uh, the various uh, the restrictions that have been placed upon us haven't worked. And that's the only well, conclusion think, you can make. <laughs> I, we can agree on the first point. They definitely don't know what they're doing. I think they're doing their best. Bless them, but they're, they're not doing well Bless enough. Them. I think they're, driv yeah, they're driven by politics quite often. Let's take this, for example, Mike. We ran a football game in September, a pilot game, got a thousand fans in, passed the whole thing with flying colours. Days later, the government said no more fans at football. We were tier one. OK, we've just had a lockdown for the whole of November. We've come out of it in tier two and we can have fans back at football how does that make any sense i know well mind you a thousand fans for you is more than you normally get isn't it <laughs> cheap mike <laughs> sorry i know i had to get one in listen dale good to talk to you i'm going to hold the book up here it is is it available in all the usual places all the usual places mike thank you top man thank Pleasure you very much indeed again. dale vince obe united nations climate champion a man that disagrees with me about almost everything but hey we can always have a rational and normal conversation, which is why I like him, and which is why the Independent Republican Mike Graham is the only place to be for common sense. This is Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, if you ask me to sum up the situation, there are lots of words you could use. You would not use, for example, joined up, right? You would certainly not suggest that anything which is being uh, uh, decided by this government uh, is in any way consistent. In fact, their cabinet minister this morning, he was on the Julie Hartley Brewer show, actually said as much, more or less, in as many words, because we're going to get um, opening times for shops opened to 24 hours. So you can shop basically around the clock. I don't know whether that's good or not. You can also go to Santa's Grotto, but you're not allowed to sit on his knee. I didn't think you could do that anyway. 
in these difficult times. Uh, the third wave might come uh, if we don't lock down properly, is what we're told. But also, the tier system is still very, very much causing a great deal of unhappiness and a great deal of anger, particularly in places like Kent, which has been put in tier three status, despite the fact that only one tiny portion of it has apparently got a bit of a problem in its hospitals. Let's talk to Dr. Wakar Rashid to find out what he's making of it all. Dr. Wakar, a very good uh, afternoon to you. Welcome. Hi, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well. Very well indeed. It doesn't get any simpler to try and work out what's going on, though, does it? Because the tier system doesn't appear to have any great consistency. Um, for example, I would not be able to say to you with any uh, certainty that the, the, the infection rate in Kent is higher than the infection rate in Sussex. And yet one's in tier three, the other's in tier two. Yes, Um this is always the problem with uh, with sort of a localized approach is how localized does one get and you're going to get these anomalies mm. with parts of the county so they're doing it on the basis of counties in the main so parts of the counties being having higher rates than other parts and uh, I, it kind of shows that um, as much as we'd like it to be a very easy picture it is complex and therefore um, one has to be one has to take that in mind. But, uh, you know, it also shows that um, we're trying to, I think, have too many rules because when you can't neatly fit or rules into what is a complex thing, you probably are not achieving a great deal, I think. Well, that's the trouble, because there isn't any evidence, really, despite what Imperial College might be saying today that any of these lockdowns have worked. I mean, there's a story now, and we haven't yet got confirmation from the Welsh administration, but it looks as though Wales is heading for another lockdown less than four weeks after the last one, which was supposed to be what they called a fire break uh, or a circuit breaker, as Keir Starmer would call it, um, which would tell me that that hasn't worked. Of course, they make the, ob the obvious um, sort of admission that it's not so much that the fire break didn't work, it's what happened after they eased it that was the problem. But that's then going to always be the problem, isn't it? I think they've said on a few different occasions, uh, from what I recall, is that they were planning further lockdowns, um, whether it be before Christmas or after Christmas. And obviously there was a lot in the press about England mm. uh, getting these five days of Christmas. It was going to be followed by 25 days of lockdown and, yeah. and all that. But I think what is key, and you know, you've alluded to that, is is actually the infection rates are doing what they want to do. And uh, they're not sort of mirroring our actions. And I think what we're finding ourselves in um, is uh, the infection rates are falling and they were falling before lockdown. Um, they'd leveled off and were starting to fall before like, lockdown. If lockdown was the key aspect in this, we'd, what we'd actually be seeing around about now is just about the peak of infection rather than a 30% drop in infection. Yeah. So uh, infection rates were falling. Uh, had levelled and falling, and was starting to fall in the northwest in Liverpool, even before um, they went into a hardened uh, tier system as well. And so what we may find ourselves in, I hope we do, I genuinely hope we do find ourselves in, is when we get to January, is actually an infection rate that is really quite low. I'm hoping that's the case. And it will make it very, very difficult, I think, for even the most hardened lockdown zealot to argue for additional restriction yeah. then. But isn't it time as well, and I know I, I'm, I'm going to say this until I'm blue in the face probably, and you've heard me say it to you many times before, isn't it time that they started separating out infections from actual um, harm, if you like, you know, so that, i.e., people who have got an infection which is mild uh, or not even at all visible should not be counted in the same number as those people who might be 
sick enough to have to go into hospital. So it, it comes down to the what is the purpose of our actions? So if we go back to March, uh, the purpose of our actions was to um, flatten the curve to spare the NHS from what was expected to be a huge peak uh, and a huge amount of pressure on beds. Right. That's serious infection, as, as you as you say. Yeah. Um, the purpose has never been to eliminate COVID or eliminate infection completely. And mm. there's a good reason for that, because you can't. Um, once the virus has been there, and it's been in the UK, in London particularly, really probably from about December, January time, yeah. uh, and uh, there was cases in France in, in December, it's been documented. So, this is, so you can't eliminate an endemic uh, virus. It's just not possible. You can't tell it to go away. But you can try and uh, mitigate against its most severe aspects. And this is what we do with other infections. And so the argument would be that we restrict to protect uh, NHS capacity because that could cause a spillover and affect all our health. It isn't, uh, I don't think there's a convincing argument to restrict to, as you say, to limit all infection of, because it is so varied in severity and a lot of it will not be a serious risk to long-term health. No, quite. But of course, if you listen to the rhetoric coming out of Downing Street and the government in general, it is all about beating the virus. It's all about, you know, smashing it, punching it, hitting it with boxing gloves and all this kind of stuff. You know, they talk about it as if they are trying to do away with it when you quite rightly and much more kind of sanely say, well, you can't really do away with it because it's going to always be there, as is the flu. I, I've tweeted a little bit about this over the last few days and I really... I'm increasingly uh, hearing uh, some of the experts talking, and obviously, as you say, with uh, some of the uh, uh, press conferences and things like that, there is a, a huge amount of emphasis, I think, from um, the pro-restriction, pro-lockdown camp in terms of feeding on our fears and emotions. Yeah. And th so there's a lot of this, as you, this sort of beating and warlike rhetoric, which is, you know, nonsensical because we're not fighting a, uh, an enemy in that sense. We're fighting nature and you can't do that. It's just not possible. But uh, I think there's a lot of messaging that is going on at, a, at an emotional level. And so when one comes along with um, good news, uh, as we've had it, not just from the uh, REACT study, the Imperial study, but there's um, other studies, the ONS study, the ZOE uh, app study, which is, I think, uh, probably the, the, the largest and the most accurate, showing very clearly that infections are coming down and we're coming down uh, and have come down before the effect of lockdown has re been realised. It's kind of is seen as, OK, but we still need to double down tight because who knows if 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 it comes back again, then we're all in trouble, third wave and so on. So I think there's a huge, there's been a huge emphasis um, from what I can see from the various experts and from uh, the, these press conferences, really going at an emotional level and feeding, I think, on our fears, which is very hard to roll back, I think. And in the long term, it's going to be quite damaging to us. Well, the thing, I mean, when you look at somewhere like Leicester, for example, that's been in lockdown, I think, for something ridiculous like 36 weeks, yeah. and yet they're still in lockdown, and yet there is no apparent benefit of that, and yet there is a massive... Um, you know, kind of problem with businesses, with 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 hospitality, with people, you know, and their mental health. You know, what is going going on there? I mean, why can the government continue to believe that that is actually something that's a good idea to continue? 
So I, I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, they've, I think from, is it from June, they've been in some kind of additional yeah. restriction. Yeah. So, you know, you make of that what you will um, as to how effective those restrictions are. I don't know what um, the capacity is at the moment, how close they are to capacity in, in the individual hospitals. From the data that I've seen, and uh, there was uh, fresh data um, I saw a day or two ago, we're roughly about, uh, un, in most regions, roughly about un, the normal average for this time of year. For So comparing 2019 figures with this, for most regions, we're pretty much on average. I don't know what it is like in Virginia and Leicester, but, uh, you know, I, I feel so sorry for the people who live there and uh, the continued disruption as I think um, I heard a clip from one of the MPs on your news bulletin without seemingly any sort of light at the end of the tunnel um, mm. it, it, I just feel so sorry for them that uh, th th you know this is continuing really well that's right and it doesn't appear I mean you know if you're living there it one it must be awful anyway but also two there's no apparent benefit to it so why continue and again, it comes down, I think, to this sort of fear um, that uh, I think the mindset is that if we uh, loosen the restrictions, that, you know, it's just going to uh, escalate and uh, take off again. But when actually what you look at it and uh, you saw this in the spring in the in the actual really big peak of the epidemic was that. Um, we had a peak uh, which uh, came on about a week or so after the national lockdown. It, it was earlier in London, and actually we peaked before lockdown, definitely in the southeast in London, uh, because we were a few weeks ahead of uh, most of the country. And it didn't actually matter um, what happened after that because we'd reached our peak susceptibility. Those who were at most risk of the infection had got the infection by then. And you can't invent new people who... Are going to get the infection we've all got our susceptibility some right. people are not susceptible some are and the majority had come into contact with the virus by then and so what you actually saw whenever there was any relaxation of um of lockdown which happened from june onwards um there was always great concern well we're going to open up this part and there, there could be a, an explosion again in cases and there never was no because it was on its way down and, and nature was taking its course there. The people who were most susceptible had got the condition, had got the virus by then. Well, this is it. I mean, I'm looking at the latest stats from the Office for National Statistics and they talk about, um, this is information released on the 26th of November, but it's for week uh, covering week uh, covering 15th to the 21st, in which they talk about levelling off in terms of infections. And the only area, they say, where positivity rates have increased is in secondary school age children over 35 decreasing um you know everything uh, any any age over that is is decreasing secondary school age children positivity um rates are going up and then yet they're basing an awful lot of this policy on those figures and if you, when you when you when you break them down you can see what's going on kids are you know, passing the disease to them to each other in secondary school what's the problem yeah, I, I think this uh, so-called second wave, this second wave that we've experienced and experiencing, is largely uh, was largely started by secondary school-age children. Because, mm. as you recall, um, it started around early September. Uh, as you say, minimal health consequence to those uh, those groups, thankfully, because um, uh, the COVID virus doesn't appear to, thankfully, be 
dangerous to people, young, healthy people. Yeah. And then it was it was kicked on further by the return of universities. Um, so you saw these peaks in Nottingham, Liverpool, Manchester, these university towns, Newcastle as well. And th this was driven, and you can see the age groups and you can see the locations. This second peak was driven by, uh, by this return of university students and the season changed. So you saw the background, pretty average sort of increase in respiratory viruses in general. And so you had you have these anomalies where you have this much more regionalized uh, peaks of uh, COVID in keeping with that, rather than what we saw uh, in, in the first peak, in the first wave, this much more diffuse uh, and epidemic that spread across. And what is interesting about the figures now is that you're seeing these significant drops now, again, in the Northwest and Northeast as this is running through, but actually the levels in the Southeast and London in particular are actually stable. They're not really going down. That's because we're at a stable sort of respiratory level because London had been through this in the first wave. Right. And that is the difficulty because unfortunately, when we will see this afternoon's uh, press conference with Matt Hancock, you know, those questions are not being asked of him. You know, he'll be talking about the, the testing system. He won't be talking about, I'm sure, uh, the false positives that may be coming out of them. He won't be talking about whether or not that those tests are actually representative of what's going on in the country. What he will be trying to do is prove that the testing is somehow making this situation better, which quite a few medical experts are now saying, actually, that's not the case. The testing is now an impingement uh, on making things better. Absolutely. Uh, so there was a, a big sort of um, uh, push to say that, uh, and Liverpool was was given tier two status on the basis of their mass asymptomatic testing. And if if you actually look at the medical experts, it's a lot about. In the, it's been in the press in the, in the last few weeks in in the British Medical Journal. Uh, there's a huge amount of concern about this. This is completely unregulated yeah. screening, uh, which is. Uh, goes against uh, the principles of screening that have been uh, very carefully uh, worked out and under national guidance. This is unregulated yeah. using tests, which we do not know the accuracy of, uh, and uh, has, has grown up uh, within a, a for-profit sort of scenario yeah. in terms of the, the purchasing. And there's a lot of people, myself included, extremely worried by this. There's no evidence to suggest that this testing had any effect on the actual infection rates in Liverpool, but it, it is being presented as if it did. Well, exactly right. We had a caller this morning, our first caller, uh, Wakar, who talked about uh, his wife working in the NHS, the testing systems that they're using currently in hospitals, the quick test, you know, the rapid one, um, has um, a, a margin of error to pick up all sorts of other viruses, including the flu, um, which might show that you're positive with coronavirus when you're not. I mean, every test that we do has a, a false negative and a false positive. And uh, there was a lot about the PCR test, which is the blood test. Yeah. Uh, the blood test. The, end, the PCR test is the uh, the nasal and uh, throat test that yeah. was used uh, when we, we have symptoms we're advised to go and get. And that was felt to be too sensitive. And there's been a lot about that, that the number of cycles used wasn't actually reflecting active mm. infection. The, these um, quick tests are called lateral flow tests. They're, they're uh, um, based on uh, picking up antigen, which is uh, sort of products of contact with a virus. Yeah. But they're not as specific. The false negative, I think, is probably quite high. No one's quantified this. But mm. the point is that they've never been looked at on a mass testing scale. 
amongst asymptomatic people. There's been no validation tests done for this to show uh, how effective and accurate they were. Um, there have been a few scenarios that have been done which have shown that their testing diminishes with the mass rollouts and we see and when people who are not trained to use them are using them and administering them. And it becomes worthless because then you, you have a situation where you can't trust if they're positive, so you're ending up isolating when perhaps shouldn't be. Right. So you've given a false sense of security. If you're, they're negative, then you're told, well, okay, you're negative. And then people then perhaps do behavior which, uh, even if they're symptomatic, they perhaps shouldn't be and potentially spreading the condition. So these are really uh, problematic on several levels. Well, they are. And also, finally, the Imperial College study, as far as I'm aware, is based very much on this kind of mail shot that they sent out about a month ago to people saying, would you like to take part in our study? Uh, please uh, say yes so that we can send you a testing kit. And so they're basically testing anyone who signs up for that. Now, you don't even know... Really, if you were making a proper clinical trial uh, as a doctor and you wanted to really make an important decision based on that clinical trial, it would not involve sending stuff out to random individuals um, who are taking a test, who knows how, whether or not they're even testing themselves, whether they're testing the cat. You know, I mean, you just don't know what they're doing. And you get the samples back. You don't know if they've been contaminated. You don't know who has really sent... You know, there's all manner of problems with something like that. And yet here's the government making decisions based on it. Yeah, I, I think that it's. Uh, you hope that with large enough numbers, some of those things can be uh, have lessened effect. I think I would look at the trends rather than the absolute numbers. And actually, um, I would suggest also looking at um, which uh, the, the study called the Zoe app, which is uh, Professor Tim Spector yeah. um, by Kings, and that's actually just based on symptoms without testing. So it, it mitigates against some of the problems that you rightly say there, Mike. And that's a, in a much larger group of people, 100,000 people, and has been very, very accurate, uh, picking up much quicker on a weekly basis, the drop in infections. And uh, I think that's a much, I think, more accurate uh, um, uh, medium. Uh, the government quoted the figures from the Imperial study. And as you say, I think they they're just have to be taken with a pinch of salt but you can see the trends the trends are down as i say they were coming down before lockdown yeah i think you're absolutely right dr wakar rashid we've got to run thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us as we spoke there uh, it's been announced in wales pubs bars restaurants and cafes will not be able to sell alcohol from friday at 6 p.m and they can only stay open after 6 p.m for takeaway or delivery and what of a scotch egg hey what's going on Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It's still pretty gloomy out there outside, I have to say. As I look upon uh, the Tower of London, it has now come back into view uh, after being shrouded in mist for most of the morning. It sits, of course, uh, right next to the River Thames, one of the most famous rivers in the entire world. And we're going to talk about rivers now because it is that time when we do a bit of homeschooling. Uh, apparently, quite a lot of children now are home from school uh, as a result of it being imposed upon them uh, because of some COVID outbreak uh, or because certain schools have actually shut their doors for a while so if you are still looking for things to teach your children uh, this is the time to do it it's after the news at 12 30 right here uh, on talk radio we're going to talk to steve brace head of education and outdoor learning uh, at the royal geographical society steve uh, nice to talk to you again how are you doing all right nice to join you again yes not at all i mean rivers right what a great subject there are so many things to ask you uh, i'm not quite sure um where to begin really but i mean I suppose the best, the best, the best question to start off with: um, 
is something you might not be able to answer because it's a ridiculous question, really. How many rivers in the world are there? I don't know how many rivers there are, there are in the world. I'm not even sure we've done a proper count. <laughs> Certainly, uh, I've been caught out on the first question. <laughs> Certainly, the have not gone and, and counted them. But if you were to ask me the country that's probably got the most rivers, right. that was Russia. And it's probably because Russia is the largest country in the world. Right. We take really long rivers, those over 900 kilometres. Russia has over 30 of those. So if you want the country with the most, that's yeah. probably Russia. Yeah, it's it's amazing, isn't it? And they are remarkable parts. I mean, you know, really integral parts, I suppose, of the planet. Um, and and obviously, the Thames, which is which is right outside our offices here, has many tributaries to it. Are are they all rivers as well, or do you have to qualify something? Yeah, to I be mean, a river? you know, we start with really really small little stretches of water called um, that start as streams, then they form into rivers, yeah. and they get bigger towards the coast as estuaries but yeah all those things contained into one river system form a watershed that all that water goes through and of course the thames starts up in thames head what 300 and early 50 kilometers away right. works it all the way through the countryside through through the capital and then of course out into the north sea as well yeah and once it gets towards the estuary of the river uh, which i don't need to explain i'm sure to people is, is where it sort of meets the sea it becomes a very mixed um type of water doesn't it it's quite salty yeah, absolutely. And, and the Thames is tidal. I mean, it's tidal outside where you're right up to Teddington Lock. I mean, I think we all in London look at the Thames and think it's just a river, but actually it's, it's sort of, it goes up and down with the tides uh, through, through central London. And then, of course, you know, makes its way through Gravesend down to Dartford and yeah. out, out into, the, uh, into the North Sea. And presumably before the Thames barrier was erected, um, and I, I, I kind of know a bit about this because I live not far from the Thames barrier, um, there must have been regular flooding of parts of London. Yeah, I mean, we did have really bad floods back in the early 1950s, and you had very high tides, plus um, lots of water coming down through the Thames, and that, that caused extensive damage and loss of life across East Anglia and right. into the Thames Valley itself. Right. And when the, when the um, Thames Barrier was first built, I think the expectation was, was it would be raised a couple of three times a year. Yeah. We're now raised a couple of three times a month, and right. that just shows of it to protecting sort of London's infrastructure and our lives and, and property. Yes. I mean, fascinating statistics I've got in front of me, such as the Congo River is the world's deepest river with measured, measured depths in excess of 220 metres. I mean, that is very deep for a river, isn't it? Absolutely. And the Congo is one of those massive rivers in the centre of Africa that takes all the sort of water that's falling in the tropical rainforests and also in high areas and mountainous areas in East Africa and takes it out to the to the west of the continent, falling right. out you know, uh, into the Atlantic. And if you were to compare, say, a map of the world with all the rivers on it, say, from 100 years ago, have they got bigger? Have they got wider? Have they, have they changed their direction? I think we'd certainly see many rivers that aren't sort of managed by, by human activity would have changed their their course very significantly you know there are, there are many many pictures and, and satellite imageries that show how meanders change on different borders and so on of course some rivers like the thames through central london is channelized now so it's not going to go anywhere right. you know it, if those who watch eastenders and the sort of loops you see at the, the meanders river at the start of the end so that's not going to change that's all sort of concreted in yes but in much more of a natural environment we will see lots of change of the growth of meanders oxbow lakes if the meanders break off as well and we see those channels change and, and, and move over time. Yeah, I was down in Cookmere uh, at the weekend where there's a lovely Oxford. Oh, it's lovely place, sure, yeah. As I'm sure you know. Um, and it is fascinating to see 
something that you've kind of learned about in school, actually in uh, in practice, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's a lovely part of the world and you see geography very much in action. You see those beautiful meanders in that chalk landscape yeah. and, of course, the coastline falling out at sort of Seven Sisters. It's a, it's a really nice well, It's not a bit of a grey day today, but on a lovely day, it would be lovely. Well, I'll tell you what, we were there on Saturday and it was absolutely stunning. Right. Really beautiful. Yeah. And I'm told, and I've seen a picture of it, that there's a bit of a, a, a chasm forming across the top of one of the Seven Sisters, which looks as though at some point or other, quite a large chunk of it will fall into the sea. Yeah, I mean, those sort of coastlines are being, you know, continually eroded by the sea's power. Mm. And, uh, you know, there are regular warnings about being a bit too close to the edge anyway. But certainly if, if the cliffs are crumbling, it's best to stay a little bit further back. Yeah. And I mean, would it be right to say that the rivers are much less polluted now than they used to be because countries are a little bit more kind of conscious of what they pour into them? I think it probably depends where you are in the world. But mm. I think certainly in the UK, we've seen improvements in our sort of water quality. Yeah, we've... I'm, you know, people may have heard of how the Thames was, you know, we've, we've probably read in history lessons about the great stinks of the, yes. you know, the early where open sewers were going straight into the mm. Thames and all the sort of sewer system that takes that out now. So the Thames has certainly improved. I imagine in, in other parts of the world, there'll be still some significant pollution in some of the rivers, but yeah. that's been worked on, I'm sure. One of my other favourite rivers in the world, because I used to live there, is the Hudson, uh, which flows, of course, down the west <laughs> side of, uh, of Manhattan. Yeah. And I, well, we, we use rivers both for sort of, you know, our drinking water, the water we use for our farming, waters and industries. But actually, you know, a bit like you mentioned about, you know, Cookmere and also the Hudson, they're just beautiful things in their own right as well. They're yeah. fantastic parts of our natural landscape. And, and as things change around the world, um, have there been rivers that, that have ceased to be? Yes, yeah, certainly some will dry up. Um the Caspian Sea uh, has reduced significantly in size. It's an inland sea um, in sort of Central Asia. And many of the rivers that run into that area, both through irrigation and climate change, have largely yeah. dried up. Is that, is, that, that, is that fresh water then, the Caspian Sea? Yeah, that would have been. Is yeah, it? Yeah. So it's more like um, a loch, really, or a lake, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those big in, inland sort of lakes. Right. Um, and going to the other part of the world, I suppose you asked about the, the places with the most rivers. Uh, the continent with the least rivers is Antarctica, but there is one river in there, the River Onyx. It only runs during summer um, when, you know, it can get above above freezing. Right. And it's it's probably the smallest, longest river in a continent at about 40 kilometres. But okay. that's, that's Antarctica's river. Right. My other favourite river is the Fleet, which runs, of course, under Fleet Street, because I come from yeah. uh, the, the, the world of journalism and newspapers. But it's largely un, uh, underground, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, I think, is it Sloan Square Station when it runs through a sort of channelised part of the station? I'm, I'm up in North London, so I have the New Loop right. River heading down by me that I think takes some of the, the stuff away from the fleet as well. But right. yeah, sometimes forget in London, there's so much of that sort of physical geography under our feet next to us that we sort of tend to forget about mm. because we've built a lot of it. Yes. Well, fascinating. I mean, you, I could, literally could talk about this all day, but we can't because I'll get told off. Steve, listen, good to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Steve Brace, Head of Education, Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society. Wonderful things, rivers, you know, and it's free. You just go and look at it. Just stand, go stand and watch a river uh, for five, ten minutes. I tell you what, you will become mesmerised in no time. It's absolutely brilliant. Particularly good if you could also find yourself with a pint of beer uh, while you look at it. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.